0: Besides God and Jesus, who are some of the major characters of the tribulation? Antichrist is going to be there. False prophet's going to be there. Okay, the, the two, actually, the two witnesses, two witnesses. the 144,000. Okay the beast, there's the, the beast is called uh, we'll see it today. There's several people called a couple different people called the beast. Okay, Israel, I don't know if I put Israel, but they should be a major character. Satan's there, Antichrist, false prophet, 144,000, two prophets, king of the north... There's king of the south, okay, king of the east, angels bringing judgments, and you have other people. Let's talk about some of the characters, but back up to where we're at and just fill in some blanks, then let's start talking about the characters in the tribulation period. We talked about the rapture. If you're just joining us, we've already covered that. Uh, The Bema seat. We've talked about that judgment seat of Jesus Christ. We are talking about the last two weeks about the tribulation. This is that period that the Bible says is the last seven years just prior to Jesus returning physically to earth to set up his kingdom. We made this conversation. That it is the most horrible time in human history, and we pointed out from several passages where Daniel says that that there was such as never was trouble in the world that the nation of Israel would face. Jesus talked about it. That talks about the great tribulation, not nothing like it since the beginning of the world. Um, ex- elsewhere, he said, "Except those days be shortened." nobody's going to survive. So we have those comments. Now the charts I gave you okay, are just to be helpful for references and uh, so the top one gives you a dispensational idea. The reason I want to point this out is just to give you a sense of what's happening. Here on the chart it gives you an idea when the rapture takes place, the tribulation period and what we've been talking about, three and a half years peace for the Jews, the second three and a half years worse for uh, the Jews and the rest of the world. Jesus Christ comes right during the high point of the battle Armageddon, and then he sets up his kingdom. His kingdom is a thousand years, okay? And then after that, we get into some other things called the Great White Throne Judgment. Um, During that first three and a half years, that's when Jesus said, you're going to hear about You're going to hear about, because most of what's happening is outside of the Jewish realm. The Jews are doing pretty good in the nation of Israel. When I say pretty good, they're doing okay. The rest of the world is having a lot of tragedy. The seal judgments, and there's three major sets of seven judgments. They're called the seal, the trumpet, and the vile judgments. And, uh, unfortunately, I'm not sure how to place this up here to give you a, a picture of the way they work. The, uh, excuse, are you getting an echo back there, Stacy? Okay, we're, we're getting a, something echoing starting in here. Thank you. If I can put it this way, um, in, that, in that seven years, the sealed judgments are in the first three and a half years. That much we know, because the seventh seal is opening up then the trumpets and the second three and a half years. The trumpet and the vial judgments on the chart that we gave you, one of them, it kind of makes it look like they're one after another. Actually, they're not. They're not in a chronological sequence where one occurs and then then after the trumpets, then the vials. They, They occur simultaneously. They seem to be focused on when uh, some of it more Israel and the Middle East, some of it more worldwide. And so, in fact, their uh, operating seem to be coinciding with each other. And we'll see an overlap in a second. So the other chart at the bottom part of the page gives you an idea of how these different Judgments, what they do, what they occur. Let me fill in the gap here. Okay, We said, and we talked about last week, when we just kind of threw all the judgments together and said what are the most difficult things, what makes the tribulation the most horrible time. Now to put it sequentially, the um, first seven seals, there's the war, the bloodshed, the famine, death, a martyrdom of saints, number five. Then there is that great day of wrath when the... Uh, when the blood becomes his moon and there's the great earthquake and all kinds of difficulties and disasters. And again, we'll, let's pick up where we were last week. When you see the pictures of Mexico Beach, Florida, and what happened there this week, can you imagine entire coastlines looking like that? Okay, and that's what we're talking about, that this time period is going to be so devastating with, uh, with the natural catastrophes, much less the war. Then what happens, There's uh, seven, the seventh seal opens up the seven trumpets. There's a silence for a bit and then the trumpets go. And so that's the seven seals. And we've talked about that and we mentioned. And we even last week made a comparison if you weren't with us. We pointed out Revelation chapter 6 gives you the seals. Matthew chapter 24, he talks about the beginning of the tribulation and it parallels constantly. Wars, famines, pestilences, diseases, earthquakes. That's what Jesus said you're going to hear about. Before the beginning of the great tribulation. And so you can see how this parallels. When you go into the trumpet judgments. The trumpet judgments. Again there's seven of them. And I have tried to rephrase a little bit here. Um, you can see the grass is affected. The seas are affected. The fresh water number three is affected. The solar system is affected. There's the affliction of people. With these locusts who torment the people without God's seal. For five months. There's the beginning of Armageddon, number 6. That's that 200 million army marching from the east. That's coming towards Jerusalem. And then number 7 is the, king, the end is declared and the kingdom of God begins. Okay, that's the trumpets okay, that, that's, that go in uh, their order. Okay, and I'm going to do this quick. You can use your other charts to fill in your blanks. The vials, very similar. Okay. There's the sores upon the mark of the those with the mark of the beast. The sea becomes blood, the rivers, and and here now it intensifies because it says all the sea creatures die. Uh, The sun is an upheaval; people are scorched. The seat of government, Babylon, is afflicted. Number five, the Euphrates is dried up, so that the million man army, two million man army. 200 million man army can march through. But that's where the demons are gathering the host together to attack Israel. And then the final one is the earth is utterly shaken. And that's when the great city of Babylon is destroyed. Uh, That's Antichrist's great city. And then it's the the great earthquake occurs at that point. Um, Let me see if I can do it this way. I wanted to show you something. If you compare the two together, the bowls and the trumpets, You can see parallels of some of the things that are happening. Number two and both are dealing with waters, seas. Number three, both dealing with fresh water. Um, Both of them, number four, are dealing with solar system upheaval. People are scorched by it. The uh, number five, both of them are targeted against antichrist domain where they're afflicted for the five months his seat of government is afflicted. Number six, both of them are dealing with preparation for Armageddon. So that's why I say they they don't happen, okay, the trumpets and then after them the vials. They're happening simultaneously. And so it's a double whammy. In fact, he calls some of these the first woe, the second woe, and the third woe. So God is declaring this is a horrible, horrible, horrible time period that's going to be taking place. Then it all wraps up with the return of Jesus Christ. And uh, we'll talk about that in the future. But Jesus Christ comes back to the earth and then he sets up his kingdom. And there's a period of, of days that he is renovating planet earth and getting it back in shape and probably the sheep judgment. And then he sets up a kingdom that is going to take us back to the Garden of Eden. So he's going to renovate. I mean, this world is going to need a lot of renovation. Jesus will do it in a matter of a few months months. Getting, getting a city like Mexico City, a small little town like that, um, Mexico City Beach, that, that's going to take months and months. It's amazing how the Lord will renovate the entire planet. So, we made this comment last week as we were wrapping up. We said that this is the tribulation. We'll, we'll deal with this a little bit again uh, when we get into Daniel 9, but the tribulation is primarily focused on God dealing with the Jews. He's not ignoring the rest of the world, but he's trying to bring the Jews to believe. And he will end up bringing a third of them will finally come to belief. So it's a very Jewish time period. The temple is renovated and reintroduced. The prophets are there. In fact, 144,000 witnesses come from which nationality? The Jews, 12,000 from each tribe. And so he's uh, going to be dealing with them, and it's going to be Jerusalem's going to be the centerpiece of what's happening as far as the activity in the Middle East, the rest of the world, and all of the battles and all of the difficulties, they're centered in the Middle East. So we have that whole idea that it's more very Jewish. And we made this as we wrapped up last week. It's going to be a period where people will get saved. Okay, And many people will get saved. We read about it that even though God is judging the world, that doesn't mean he has given up on people getting born again. Jesus talked about the gospel being preached into all the corners of the earth during that time period. There's going to be people who will suffer martyrdom the majority of believers who come in faith at that time will die, but it talks about them having received the word and they've, they were slain because of their testimony. We know there's 144,000 that are out witnessing and sharing the word of God. We know as well that of their ministry, of the 144,000, it says, I beheld the results of the, their preaching, a great multitude which no man could number all nations kindreds tribes tongues stood before the lord and so a lot of them are martyred but he said that there will be a vast number of people getting born again through the witness of what's happening in catastrophes which by the way should remind us that can god use catastrophes now to get out his gospel Yes, and so we should take advantage of these moments where we have these catastrophes to help people out, but also to share the gospel. We know that there's the witness of the two prophets, and keep this in mind, it's an interesting phrase in Revelation, there's angels that will go out and share the gospel. So God is very active in giving out the word of God during this time period, and I mentioned to you already that one-third of the Jews will end up in faith coming to believe Jesus Christ is the, the true Messiah. And that is at the closing of the tribulation period as Jesus Christ is descending. So the remnant one, will be one-third of the Jews who will survive the tribulation because they come to faith in Jesus Christ. So we know that this time period has a lot of evangelism. Can, evangelism can, can happen. Um, when we hear people say at times, oh, it is so hard to be a witness at, put whatever you want. Hershey, or in some in the store where you work at, or in in a town where you live in, you can, the witnessing can be take place and evangelism can take place in any culture today if it can take place then. So we don't want to give up on it, and so we want to make sure that we are presenting a good testimony that God can use even in the darkest places. Besides, light is most effective where it is totally dark. Okay, and so uh, don't give don't lose hope. Now, the main characters, let's, let's embark on this for a little bit today. The main characters, the main individuals, let's start with the one that is probably the most predominant that people know about. In fact, movies are made about him, right? The world as a whole. You mentioned Antichrist, they have some concept about him. So let's talk about him from a biblical point of view. Um, who is he? What does he do? Is he alive today? Okay, let's answer some of those questions. He's described in multiple passages. One of those New Testament passages is 2 Thessalonians. And I'm going to hang in the New Testament this morning, but there's other passages you can read later that talk about him. The passages that give you the most detail about this man are these. Two of them are found in Daniel. And in fact, there are three, three, he's mentioned in three chapters of Daniel. And in those three chapters, he's mentioned as the leader of the revived Roman Empire. Uh, He is uh, compared to a fellow from history called Antiochus Epiphanes. Okay. He's a character that showed up in ancient world after the Greeks under Alexander had spread into the Middle East and were in Jerusalem. Antiochus Epiphanes was one of those who was governor, leader, whatever term that they used at that time, over the Middle East area, including Jerusalem, Palestine, and that region. And uh, he he was a corrupt individual, and he was one that demanded that the Jews would stop a lot of their practices. They were, it was illegal to circumcise their, their boy babies. It was illegal to continue sacrificing um, at the temple. It was illegal to keep on meeting with the synagogues. And so he was very anti-Jewish, and he struck at the very heart of Judaism. Okay? Because remember in the Old Testament concept, without being, without being uh, crass, in the Old Testament concept, uh, circumcision of the male babies was their identity. Right? That was the physical, the physical identity of this is, this is the Jewish nation. And so Antiochus Epiphanes wanted to basically wipe them out. And he is the one that some of his soldiers went into an area and they started disrupting uh, any kind of Jewish services. They started a revolt. He even comes into Jerusalem and he wants a pig slaughtered within the temple. And so from a Jewish point of view, slaughtering a pig as a sacrifice would be Kosher or non kosher? Okay. Uh, and so that was called the desolation of abomination, right? Is when he went in and they desecrated the temple with these ungodly sacrifices and establishing some uh, some false gods. That was called the abomination of des- uh, the desolation, abomination, abomination of desolation. Jesus references that in Matthew 24 when he says, When you see the new. Abomination, de- desolation, abomination, I'm saying it backwards Both way, uh, either way. He, uh, Jesus refers to that, that Antichrist will do that same thing at the middle of the tribulation. Something where he desolates, something with a, with that's abominable in the temple. And so that passage starts giving you some of the background. And in 2 Thessalonians 2, we get picked up with some of that. 2 Thessalonians 2. Let's jump down into the text where he's talking about the end times. Second Thessalonians 2, let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there be a falling away first, and the man of sin, that's Antichrist, be revealed, called the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sits where? In the temple of God, showing himself that he, yeah, that's the abomination of desolation in the future that Jesus is referring to. He desecrates the temple by claiming, he goes into the Holy of Holies and declares himself Jehovah. Remember you not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. And now know you that what withholds or keeps back that this man might be revealed? For the mystery of iniquity is already at work. In other words, evil is already preparing, getting ready, setting the stage. He says, goes on, he says, only he who now keeps things back will continue to keep things back or restrain things until he, that is, whoever the restrainer is, and I believe it's the Holy Spirit slash the church, be taken out of the way. Then shall that wicked be revealed, that's Antichrist, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. That's telling you when Antichrist will be removed by Jesus Christ at his second coming. Even him whose coming is after who? The working of Okay, Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. Therefore, God gave them strong delusion. Let's go over to Revelation. The other passage that gives us most detail about this guy, he's referenced in a couple of passages, but Revelation 13 gives us the most detail about him in Revelation chapter 13. We're going to see it in Revelation 17 this morning, next week, as we go through that text, verse by verse. But let's jump into Revelation 13. This is, um, and Kevin, you brought up the idea of a beast, okay? This is one of those passages that's describing the beast. Now, Satan is called the beast at times, but in this text, it's talking about Antichrist. So, as you go through Revelation, make sure you understand that both, uh, both Satan and Antichrist are called beast, You say, well, that can be confusing. It could be, but understand why they're both called beast. Why would he do that? Why would Satan and Antichrist both be referred to at times as the beast? Okay. okay they're very much the same one is the spiritual you know, designer and empowering the other is the actuary take uh, actual one carrying it out and so they're on the same goal same path and so he does interchangeably call them that I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea having seven heads ten horns upon his horns ten crowns and upon his heads the names of blasphemy and, and um, understand that you, I'm not doing justice here. Uh, chapter 12 is describing Satan and his activity and how Satan is the dragon and what he's doing. Chapter 13 describes Antichrist. And so he's going to use some of these descriptions where he's talking about beast and multiple crowns. And you're going to see similarities. If you go back into chapter 12, you'll see that there's some parallels in the description. But here we're talking about Antichrist, and he's got ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard. His feet were as the feet of a bear, his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon, Satan, gave him power and his seat, his capital, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world wondered after the beast, and they worshipped the dragon, Satan, which gave power unto the beast, Antichrist. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue for 40 what? 42 months. How long is that? Three and a half years. Okay. He opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given unto him over all kindreds, tongues, nations, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life uh, of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If any man hear, let him hear. He that leads into captivity shall go captive. But he that kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Then there's another beast, very similar, like twins. I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. He exercises all the power of the first beast and causes the earth and them that dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. And he does great wonders so that he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men and deceives them that dwell upon the earth by means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. Three times now, did you catch it? Three times in the passage, it is in describing this person as having the most phenomenal experience. He suffered a head wound And comes back to life. Three times it's mentioned, which he wants us to understand. This is something very unusual, very abnormal. This man will appear to be resurrected. Okay, Who else do we know from history that was resurrected? Jesus Christ, okay. So that's part of this antichrist that comes into play. And then this, his co-worker, his helper, it says in verse 15, had power to give life unto the image of the beast, and the image of the beast should speak, caused as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Sounds very much like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego having to fall down before the image of the great king of Babylon. He'll do that same type of thing. Those who don't worship get killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich, poor, free, bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark and the name of the beast or the number of his name. And the number is... Okay, you understand that. Those are descriptions. Can I, can I jump there and just kind of do this quickly? Description, putting the passages together and saying, okay, what do we learn about Antichrist? So let's do, first of all, his character. Then let's do his sequence of activities that are highlighted in Scripture. What we know is he's a real person. Okay? And this is important for us to understand that he is, not, um, he is not a figment. He is not Satan coming and appearing on the earth. He is a real man. Okay? And uh, he is a real individual. And it talks about he has the eyes of a man. It talks about the man of sin. He's a real flesh, blood, body character. Okay? He's not an authority or he's not some influence or some some uh, style of living. He's a person. We also know that he's empowered by Satan. The dragon gave him his power, his seat, his great authority. The dragon again, chapter twelve gives you all the, the description of the dragon, Satan. They worship the dragon which gave the power to the beast. So he is going to be um, he's going to be wi- working directly with Satan and uh, given a lot of abilities by Satan to advance Satan's cause. He is superior to other people. He is going to be an individual that people will admire, that they will follow after. Why? It's a lot of traits are given in Scripture. Okay, his appearance. He's more stout or better looking than your average fellow. Um, do you remember, uh, do you remember there's a character in the Old Testament that he was mentioned in the New Testament as, and in the Old Testament as being one that was very impressive because of his appearance. Okay, Saul was. Saul was by his, by his height. David was very ruddy and very good-looking. Samson was by appearance and drew people. Okay? Moses was as a child, remember? He was a beautiful child to look upon. So some of those characters in Scripture, God is, is uh, you know, recognizing that people, we respond sometimes to the facial appearance of individuals, even within our leadership that we look at. Speaking, uh, he's got a mouth that speaks great things, that he's one given a mouth to speak great things. In other words, he's a fantastic order, speaker. He's going to captivate people. Anybody from history that you know in, in the last hundred years that captured people's attention by their oratory? Okay, Hitler would be the one that we would think was the most evil. Okay. Who? Churchill could do that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um our, one of our presidents was known as you know, the Great Order. Reagan, yeah. Yeah. Well this guy's gonna outclass everybody, okay, in that regard. Military genius okay the same horn now we're going back to Daniel you can look this up later the same horn made war with the saints prevailed against them devours the whole earth so he is, he is able to exercise a lot of his influence because he is very very focused and notice that he honors the God of forces so in the sense that he is going to be very dedicated to the military and that type of thing and so he is a very effective military leader in helping to resolve conflict by destroying everybody else. Very ambitious. It says he shall think to change the times and the laws, exalt himself and magnify himself above all the gods. I was uh, doing an doing a, uh, audio uh, biography of Julius Caesar. One of the things that Caesar came, came in is he changed the entire Roman calendar, brought it into what we have, more of what we have today, but changed the, even the idea of the 365 days. And some of the people who were opposed to him and saying he's got to go was because they were saying he is thinking to change the times. How audacious of anybody to think that they have the power to rearrange the week, to rearrange the calendar. Well, he will. Antichrist will. And he will get away with it. And he will be maneuvering and manipulating the different times and the works. And how that works, I don't know. I know from history that under the Bolshevik Revolution, one of the things they wanted to do was change the normal work week. And they thought, you know, we'll get away from the seven days, and they went to, anybody remember this from history? They went to a 10-day work week. Okay? And it didn't work because God has put in nature seven days, and out of seven days you're supposed to Rest one. If you don't do that, okay, it's, just, it's a natural law. But, um, but different people have tried this at times, and Antichrist will. Great intelligence. Great intelligence. So it rules out half of Washington, D.C., right? Okay. Great intelligence, because it says in the latter time, he's a king of fierce countenance and understands the dark sentences, and they'll stand up. So is that, some, would, some commentators say, well, what this means is he's involved with the dark arts, and those types of things. Others say he understands things that people don't typically understand and probably blends the two of them. Um, Very powerful. Extremely powerful. We made a comment about this, that he suffers a deadly wound and he resurrects, he revives. And people will wonder who is able to make war with him. He is so powerful. He is so intimidating. He causes all these different individuals to follow after him and to, uh, with the help of the false prophet, to uh, swallow his Kool-Aid hook, line, and sinker when it comes to the economics. Extremely powerful individual. We know as well that he has great political skills, that power is given him over all kindred, nations, tongues. We know that he captivates the world, that people will wonder after him, that they will... Let me throw this out. It's, It's at the end of Antichrist, the notes, and we won't get there today, but let me throw this out right now. With all the press that people have, even the unsaved. There's movies about antichrist uh, the, in America. Let's, let's pick in America. If you ask most people antichrist, a good guy or a bad guy, what will the majority of people who know the term, what will they say? He's a bad guy. I mean, that's going to be the normal, the normal response in our culture. Then how does this guy who is a bad guy get to be so popular and in such authority? What's that? The deception is going to be there. There's the spiritual deception that God gives him over. The deception he does, and the deception that that is working. What other reasons might people be gravitating to this dude? He what? Okay, he's going to unite the world in an economic pattern. Okay, does money speak? Okay, does does money make people follow? Okay. And so if, if people feel that they're prospering, will they go for even people with low ca- moral character as long as it's benefiting their pocketbook? Yeah, yeah. Any other reasons you can think why he becomes... I mean, those are the strong reasons. How about the threat? I mean, seriously. No, er, you, Think about this for a moment. The guy gets killed and comes back to life. Is that going to dissuade assassins? I mean, what would be the normal response? What's the point? What's the point? I might as well succumb to this guy because if I don't, I don't eat. I don't don't get anything. And the world's in such a mess. And I think that's probably one of the factors we have to remember, that he really comes to his own. It's going to be after the rapture that he comes to his own. The world is going to be in chaos after the rapture, right? Okay, The world's going to be in chaos, and there's not going to be a conscience anymore within the world because we're the light and we're the uh, salt. So the conscience is removed, and he is promising one thing that gets people. There was a word that was used back in the 90s that got Bill Clinton elected, that he used as his, was that the 90s he was president? Or 80s? 80s, whatever it was. Do you remember he came from this town, he used that same that same simple word it wasn't peace. It came from Hope, Arkansas. Do you remember? And his whole thing was hope, 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 hope. If people think that this guy can resolve their problems, and he's going to be a great speaker. You can see where the you know, people are going to go after him really, really quick. So he appears to be invincible. We already mentioned that. There, there's able to, nobody's able to make war. We do know this. He's a Gentile. Okay, he's not Jewish, because it talks in Daniel 9, when we get into you'll see that the people of the prince that shall come are going to come and destroy Jerusalem. That's the Romans that came, that were predicted to come and destroy, and so he's out of that Gentile background. He rises out of the different nations, out of humanity, and we, we read it here this morning. The last 42 months are called the times of the Gentiles. And so he, as the Gentile ruler, will oversee and take over Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is given to, the, given to the Gentiles for 42 months before God reclaims it for his promised people. So he's a Gentile leader. We know as well he's spiritually corrupt. Without even going into details, we, we already found out that he's, he's very focused on different deities, the God of the forces speaks against Jehovah. Blasphemy is is on his head multiple times. So he's spiritually corrupt. Let's add a couple other things. He is ruthless. He is ruthless. He is the politician of politicians that he is all about number one himself. Very ruthless. Um, it talks about how he's going to tread down the earth. He makes war with the saints. He doesn't regard the desire of woman. Now this passage is debated. And it's saying, okay, is he homosexual? Is he asexual? Is he just cruel to ladies and sees them as just somebody he can trample all over and just kind of use as he goes up the ladder? Which one it is, I don't know. And neither does any of us in particular. That's kind of left out there that we aren't sure exactly what it's referring to. He overthrows three of his colleagues. This is his ruthlessness seen politically. When he comes to the beginning of his power, he's going to exercise great power by getting rid of some of his allies. Three of his ten-nation confederacy colleagues he'll wipe out. He then destroys, later on, his other ally, the apostate church. Then he'll destroy his, um, his, those who oppose him, all of the, the Jews, the believers, and the two prophets. He's just ruthless. This guy, he, he doesn't have friends that he is loyal to. He is just all about himself. We're going to talk in Revelation 17, that's where we're going to turn next and see if we get there in these next few minutes, and look at some of what he does during that time period. But we also learn this, okay, this is now the sequence of events, let's fill in and get up to a certain spot as far as we can. He becomes the leader of a ten-nation confederacy, beginning of the tribulation. He achieves the position by unseating three of the ten other leaders, I don't know what this 10-nation confederacy is. It used to be referenced as the a possibility of the European Union. The problem you have is you have more than 10 nations right now in the European Union, but you also have Brexit taking place, and so there's nations trying to pull out and things of that sort. Could that be the ent- entity if it were to happen today? Possibly. The, uh, the other factor is that he's got to come out of the Western world, the revived Roman Empire. And so that's why we look and say, okay, possibility of European Union, because you have to look at where was the Roman Empire in ancient days. It was in the, in that area around the Mediterranean, especially Europe. So it's the Western world as as referenced by by uh, Most of history, and so there 's going to be a ten nation confederacy he 's going to usurp three of those kings and become basically one third of the leadership of the Ten Nation Confederacy, which will exalt him to the top of that party. Then what he does is as uh, in that capacity, he makes his treaty with Israel, a seven year treaty that he 's going to break halfway through, representing that confederation he will ally up with Israel. Why would they make a treaty? Why would they ally themselves with Israel? Basically offering Israel economic, military help and protection. And if we start putting some of the other passages together, the indication is that there's going to be some type of, of battle, some type of war taking place in the Middle East towards the beginning of the tribulation, where they even burn the weapons for seven years, it says. And so there's some conflict happening that Israel is going to need help. And again, we've referenced this before, a historical context back to George Bush Sr. when he was president. First time it ever happened in Israel's history. First time in their modern history. They allowed somebody else to fight their battle. Do you remember that? In the first Gulf War, they agreed not to retaliate. You remember seeing the pictures of this? That they were being bombed with those scud muscle, uh, uh Missiles, muscles. <laughs> you get bombed with muscles. That's not going to be real dangerous. Um, but they were getting those. Mis- Do you remember this? And the little kids were in these bomb shelters, and they had the gas masks on. Anybody remember those? That that whole scenario. That was the first time that Israel did not retaliate to protect themselves, but rather agreed to letting an outside force do the protecting for them. That was huge, a huge shift in Israeli policy at that moment. Well, they're going to have to get help, and so they're going to do this again, where at the beginning of the tribulation, where battles are taking place, they're going to turn to the west for help, and uh, in that whole vision it talks about them being attacked by their neighbors, rising as an army, and so Antichrist will come alongside, the treaty and provide some of their protection with them. So there's these series of wars that take place that we've already mentioned. Now, from a spiritual point of view, this fits part of the sealed judgment. The seal judgment says that he's going to exercise more and more military authority, take peace from the earth, but also come as appearing on the white horse as a man of peace, but he's basically a red horse that's a lot of death. And so offering peace, offering peace, but he's going to use that scenario of the Middle East and Israel and protecting them to help elevate, not Israel, but who's he trying to elevate himself, through this whole thing. So we know that eventually towards the middle of the tribulation, there is a great battle that takes place. The king of the north, which is called Gog and Magog, if we were to put in modern uh, phrases, that region ancient called Gog and Magog is modern Russia. Okay, And so they're going to come down, and the way the battle unfolds in Ezekiel 38 is there's Jerusalem, the flowers are Jerusalem. Okay, They're being attacked by the king of the north and the king of the south and it lists some of those ancient nations that were considered south which are mostly what kind of nations today? Arab nations. They're going to have an alliance where they're going to do a pincers attack against Jerusalem and there's a great, great battle taking place. What happens is the Arabs and the, and the king of the north, king of the south, king of the north, they're victorious. They defeat the uh, basically the peoples in the Jeru- Jewish area, and especially their um, what word do I want to use? Um, their protector. They're going to defeat him in battle. Their protector is Antichrist. He's the king of the north, uh, king of the west. He's the one who has signed the treaty. He's going to suffer and be beaten. In fact, he will suffer a deadly head wound. Okay. Then the passage goes on to say that they have won, and the king of the north will keep on going and turning on his allies and attack the kings of the south. Can you imagine if it were Russia doing that? Okay, Trying to take advantage and continuing war afterwards? That would be just so consistent with what they did in the past. Okay? So they'll continue and what happens is there's this battle taking place south of Jerusalem by the edge of the wilderness and the king of the north is beating up on the king of the south because the king of the north wants to establish who as the world ruler. Okay. Antichrist is dead. He's suffered a deadly head wound. King of the north wants to be the king of everybody. Can you imagine Russia wanting to do this? Okay, so they'll they'll be in this major, major battle south, and it's the king of the north. If it it happened today, it would be Russia against the Arab nations in those regions. And it says he's going to hear tidings back by the city. Okay, what could be the tidings that would make that king of the north turn his army around and march back to re-engage back in Jerusalem? What could possibly catch his attention within the few days after defeating Antichrist? Antichrist coming back to life. Antichrist coming back to life. So the king of the north reverses and starts heading back north and the passage says all of a sudden his army will be destroyed by fire and hail coming from heaven. And so that that, I'm, and I'm using terms just for modern-day reference because the whole stage could change. But that would mean the Russian army, who has been the great victor at this point, they're going to get destroyed. And there's last man standing. King of the South has been defeated. King of the North has been defeated. Who's the last man standing right now in this region? Antichrist, the king of the West, who's come back to life. By the way, if you were Antichrist at that moment, if you're Antichrist... What would you take credit for? In that sequence I just told you. The hail and the fire coming down from heaven to destroy the Russian army. Wouldn't you, as a politician, take credit for it? If you're corrupt? And then say that you're the one. And so then he's last man standing. Now there's a king of the east that has been out of it and staying out of it. And doesn't get involved until the next major battle which is Armageddon three and a half years later. Okay, which, so you have in the, in the Middle East and you have in the Western world, you have last man standing Antichrist, who then exalts himself as God and takes over the economics of all of this region, and he's in total domination, and who is able to stand against him? You think about that phrase, who is able to stand against him if he claims that he brings fire down from heaven? Who is able to stand against him? all of it just fits like you know like pieces of a puzzle without the exact dates or individuals with names. We don't know that. But the rest of the puzzle is amazing how it fits together. So I've given you some of these in your notes, okay, that they attack. During the campaign, he suffers a mortal head wound as Revelation 13, Revelation 17. Both indicate that he has died come back to life. King of the North hears of strange tidings. I've already mentioned this. And so he heads back towards Jerusalem. Part of the way back, he's destroyed by hail from heaven. And Antichrist, I believe, would take the natural credit for this. He on this is when Antichrist breaks off his treaty with the Jews, okay? And he's going to declare, if he brings fire down from heaven, then he is who? He's God. And so he establishes himself as God, seats himself in the very temple of God, the abomination of desolation, going into the Holy of Holy and sitting himself on the Ark of the Covenant and claiming himself to be God. And... Would you think the Jews, by nature of their heritage, would go along with this? Okay. There's a yes and a no to this, right? Yes, that economically a lot of them might go with it. But would they, from a nationalistic point of view, will some of them just go, wait a minute, he's just violated our temple. Historically, they know that this is bad. Now, whether they are turning to Christ, that's not the point. But there's going to be then the hatred against the Jews like never before. And this is the moment that Antichrist does some political maneuvering. Um, let, let me throw this out. If our president dies, okay, he suffered a deadly head wound. Let's put, put our president in this scenario. He suffered a deadly head wound. How long does it take for us to replace the seat of authority of the presidency? Days, weeks. Okay, it's done. It's done ASAP. Right? Okay. Okay. Western thinking. That's Western government. That's the way we operate. Okay. This is a Western government that he's leading. When he dies and suffers the deadly head somebody's got to take over for him. Somebody's got to assume authority. You know, while he's dead, while he's lying in state or lying on a battlefield, somebody's got to declare we're, we're in charge. And somebody does. Revelation 17 tells us exactly what happens at that time. Revelation 17 reveals that and talks about Antichrist being there, Antichrist dying, somebody taking authority, but then somebody taking authority from that somebody. Can you imagine it happening in politics that the person who claims to be successor, they're overthrown. Do you ever ever think in history we have cases like this? That somebody doesn't like who declared that they're the successor? Oh, by the way, in the ancient Roman Empire, when Caesar died, didn't they go into major, major wars for a period of time before they settled who was the next Caesar? But right away, as soon as he died, Mark Antony declared he was the head of the government. But then later, Caesar Augustus spoke up and said, no, I don't want to follow you, and they started that major civil war. That's what's going to happen in those days, the days following Antichrist's death. You're going to have somebody, uh, and, and Revelation 17 tells us all this. It tells us who takes over, and then they get overthrown, and then when Antichrist is revived, the ones who overthrew, the one who took over for him, they're going to give power back to Antichrist. Sounds confusing, but it's all there. God gives us all these details so that we can read in Revelation 17, how did we get to the point where Antichrist is in such total authority and control to set up his major city called the the New Babylon. And so Revelation 17 gives us a lot of that detail, which is confusing. One of the more confusing passages in the book of Revelation, if you don't if you you don't put it in its context this way, but you, when you go through it, and we won't have time today to go through it, when we do it next week, you're going to go, oh, wow, that makes perfect sense. It all fits together like a hand in the glove. So with that in mind, let's leave the hand in the glove right now, okay, get ready for worship, and we'll pick up with this whole political scenario next week. Thanks for listening.